0: Hello and welcome to the Methods Matter podcast from Dementia Researcher and the National Center for Research Methods, the show that pokes its nose into the dark corners of research methods. If, like me, you're always on the lookout for a new perspective or a new approach to your research, then this show is for you. In this series, we will be looking at five different research methods, with a research methods guru and a dementia researcher that has put the method into practice. I'm Donica Mullen. I'm a Clinical Research Fellow at University of Edinburgh, and I'm delighted to be hosting the second season of this great podcast. So now we're going to shine a light into those dark corners and focus on focus groups. Helping me today, we have two awesome guests. In Expert Corner, we are once again joined by Dr. Karen Hughes, and in Research Ranch, we have Postgrad researcher Nadine Mirza. Hello and thanks for joining us.
1: Hi. Hi everyone.
0: Great to have you along. Karen is an Associate Professor at University of Leeds, Director of the Timescapes Archive, Editor-in-Chief of the BSA Sociological Research Online, and Senior Fellow of the National Centre for Research Methods. Karen is internationally recognised for innovation in qualitative longitudinal methods, and an international leader in new qualitative methods. She has led research on the ethical production of digital repositories and archives for work relating to understanding the longitudinal dynamics of poverty, health, and addiction. Nadine is a research psychologist at University of Manchester, as well as being an aspiring clinical and occupational psychologist. She is currently working towards her PhD in mental health and her research focuses on cognitive testing within ethnic minorities and improving British South Asians' access to dementia services and receiving an accurate diagnosis. So, let's begin. Now, I haven't had much experience with focus groups, but I expect a good way to start is perhaps with one of those random, awkward, icebreaker questions. So, I went online and found my favourite... Are you both ready to answer? Nadine, I'll ask you first. As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up and why?
1: I'm just thinking, what what didn't I want to be? Like, <laughs> I wanted to be a DJ. I wanted to open a bed and breakfast. Like, it was always changing. Um, but a consistent one I wanted to be was a writer. I wanted to be a writer since I was five. Um, I don't particularly know why. And I know why I didn't go down a career because my... Dad just looked at me at five years old and said, you're not going to make any money as a writer. (laughs) But um, actually, it it worked out well because I get to do so much writing and what I do now. So it panned out well.
0: Awesome. Awesome. You circumvented your dad's uh, negative, (laughs) (laughs) snuck it in there. I like it. I also like the idea of a like a DJ Airbnb slot. And there's I think there's definitely room for you to do that as well, Nadine. Keep the Manchester vibe alive. Oh, very much so. And Karen, what about you?
2: well, it was more of a superpower, actually. I just wanted to be able to fly. I, I just love that idea. Um, but like like Nadine, I just absolutely loved writing and having that very creative, immersive experience in writing. Um, and, um, yeah, I think it's sort of like, I, I think that's why we're drawn to the careers that we're drawn to often, because it allows us to, um, you know, do those sorts of things at great length, actually, writing as an academic. <laughs>
0: I love how it clarifies your thoughts a little when you when you start to put it down on paper. I love that feeling. Well, what do I know about focus groups? So we begin each podcast with me giving a summary of what I understand of the method we're discussing, which of course today is focus groups. So when I think of focus groups, I'm imagining some kind of advertising agency grabbing 10 people off the street to ask them what they think of the new packaging for cereal or what they think of a new ice cream flavour. I know that will be the wrong answer, so I cheated and turned to the Oxford Bibliographies, which told me that, and prepare yourself for quite a long explanation, Focus groups are a research method using multi-person interviews to generate qualitative data from participants' interaction. The purpose is to induce conversation between participants to answer questions relevant to the study goals. In contrast to one-on-one interviews that are also widely used in qualitative research, the source of the data is in the interaction between participants, including similarities and differences between their experiences, opinions and perceptions. This helps researchers understand not just what the participants think about a topic, but also why they think that way. Karen, having put to bed my understanding and the rather stuffy formal description, can you give us a better description of the technique and introduce us to the method?
2: Well, I, I think that you've you got most of it there, um, but I'll add just a bit more. So where you observe the interactions of the participants as your objective study... Um, That might be, for example, where you get professionals to problem solve, say giving social workers a vignette of a situation like a case and asking them to say how they would deal with it. So you're able to see how they work as a group and capture the key narratives that they use in working through particular sets of problems and decisions. Um, You're able then also to observe how social workers might interact and that might be a useful method for interrogating hierarchies or power dynamics in professional groups. But there's a couple of more um, ways in which you might use focus groups. So you might use it as part of a longer research process. Um, So you, you might use focus groups to... Really quickly bring together a breadth of experiences in a particular area as part of an exploratory research design. Um, that you that that phase then produces a lot of research questions you can follow up. But you might use it at the other end of a research um, process and interrogate the research findings or insights so far from research that you where you've used other sorts of methods such as one to one interviews. Um, So that could also be called a member checking seminar, uh, but it operates on very similar principles to a focus group. Um, It's to refine your insights and you're often testing the principle. But then you might use it. And I think a lot of people use it this way, particularly students. I think it's very effective or very often in health health research, which is this one off stage of data gathering, um, because you need to generate some insights quite rapidly from quite a large number of people. Um, and probably from multiple viewpoints. So it's feasible to convene a number of different um, focus groups, such as with patients, with their families, and then with practitioners, and to understand um, those, those, various, um, those various viewpoints, So as well as getting a spread of, view, of viewpoints from within each group. And there's lots of techniques you can use in a focus group as well so I've mentioned vignettes but you can use just the broadest possible range of um, visual or audio prompts um, and given that we now routinely work in these blended environments so you can use film or other materials to support or capture um, discussion so film might be used if you're really really focused say on body language or those interactional dynamics you might want to film in order to uh, you know cap- capture those specifically
0: wow i love that idea I, um, I i wonder is it technically difficult to capture the body movements of a of a larger group of people or would you need to keep that to a smaller group in order to have the right you know kind of footage to, to actually see yeah. what people are doing
2: well and also you have to i mean as part of that um it's not only the capture of all of those movements but it's the analysis because if what you're doing is looking at those micro dynamics those micro interactions and and you've got like 20 30 people um you're having to explore how those might be changed depending on the size of the group but then also having a look at all all of that data it's it's questionable about how much actual analysis that you can do so that might be for a very very large study but when it's a focus group in the way that we're probably going to be talking about it today it's preferable to keep the groups quite small. If you were filming, that you would have, say, a couple of cameras. There's obviously a, um, additional um, <clears throat> and intensified ethical considerations around how you would use those data because they're obviously very identifying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, but, okay.
2: Yeah.
0: So I did, oh, I always <laughs> want to ask you which of these methods that we talk about are hard to use or easy to use, but I guess mm-hmm. it's always nuanced. And yeah. you describe described a situation there that might, get quite technical and quite difficult to use Um, but also you said that focus groups in general are used by a lot of of student researchers so overall would you class it as something uh, as a technique that is that is hard a hard method to use
2: I don't think so and I know that we're going to talk about some challenges a little bit later on but um, just at this point uh, I I don't think it's a hard method to use actually the challenge is keeping up with the conversation, recording the conversation and having a means of making sure that you can attribute um, something that's said or done in a, in a focus group to a particular person. So that you might want to, uh, if you're wanting to do those sorts of analyses, these sorts of people said this. So that's why it's quite good to have Focus groups. Safe. It's about not mixing patients, families, and healthcare professionals. Keeping those separate so that you can talk about well, what patients were talking about. So recording that um, and also eliciting responses is in a focus group. But people, if you keep it small, um, I, I personally, between no larger than fourteen, preferably, preferably between eight and twelve. That would be my. Um, my sort of recommendation um, about about 12 which is quite good.
0: Okay brilliant that's some really good stuff thanks for that wonderful introduction and, and overview. Now Nadine I wonder could you tell us about your research what you have discovered and, and how you have used focus groups?
1: So um, as mentioned before my research is about just Helping British South Asians get a more accurate dementia diagnosis, and that includes lots of things such as making sure the tests that are used to diagnose them are you know, designed for their culture and language, interviewing and doing focus groups with staff and service users and carers of those service users um, to find out you know what problems are existing when trying to get into memory clinics. And what solutions we can come up with and then i also have used focus groups around adapting different tests for diagnosing dementia so getting feedback on the content of the tests and how they're perceiving tests and all that kind of stuff so i've used focus groups at lots of different stages for test development to get feedback about services and in ppi work as well
0: okay Brilliant! That's a really nice variety around it. Just to just to clarify, when you mentioned adapting the tests for um, for diagnosing dementia, (laughs) is that adapting it, translating it, or culturally adapting it, or what what
1: kind of? It's actually um, a blend of both. So typically, what would happen is I get a test, and because I know Urdu, which is a very popular South Asian language, I do a translation myself. But then I would go take it to my target population. And for example, to a focus group, I would show them my new version of the test. And not only are they going to criticize whether I have maybe used the right words and the language is actually a true translation, they would also look at cultural aspects. So things that are independent of language, such as images or concepts, things like that.
0: Awesome, awesome. That's brilliant, and I can see why you'd use a focus group for for that method. Um, I, I haven't thought of that, and I've had that issue in the past with work I was doing, and a focus group could have been a, a great solution. Um, did 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 you find that you could you could carry on with this work during the pandemic? Could you use these focus groups during the pandemic?
1: It was definitely tougher during the pandemic, and I think it's because of the intersectional nature of my population so it's um not just during the pandemic it's older people it's south asians so-called hard to reach population and then it's people with dementia and their carers, people who who don't have a lot of time people who struggle to operate on technology um so i would say the pandemic for a while there couldn't do anything Um, It was a very slow, gradual finding ways. And I had to kind of be adaptive in that sense. So, For example, I didn't always do my focus groups on Zoom, um, because that could be really distressing for some of my participants to see multiple people on screens and a bit of confusion about who's actually there, who's not there. But one thing I figured out was um, a lot of my participants were Pakistani. They've got so much family back home in Pakistan. And they're really used to doing WhatsApp conversations. Like that's very normal for them. So I was able to do a focus group just on WhatsApp. And that felt very natural and normal to them to have their phone there and they can hear these voices, but it's something very common. So it's, it's just about learning that even though Zoom has taken over the world, there are other forms of technology people might be more comfortable with.
0: Amazing, awesome. Yeah, I like that. I love that adaptation as you go along mm-hmm. and, and that's how you could keep going with focus groups. I love that. Well done. And you've mentioned a few things about what were the, the targets of your research. Mm-hmm. So whether that's to get the perspective of patients or carers yeah. or whether it's to explore their their journey through memory clinics to get a diagnosis. What what kind of things did your research, can your research tell us so far?
1: Uh, so far It can tell you that the most obvious answers are under our noses. So, for example, when it it came to the tests, um, a lot of people do think that, oh, you just need to translate them and you're fine. But this is actually a really fun example I have for my focus groups. In one of the tests, there's an image of a kangaroo and a person is just supposed to tell you, oh, it's a kangaroo. And in my groups, I think about, I had about, two separate groups each had about 10 people and i could say about 14 people didn't know what it was and i initially i think because we were in a focus group a few of them were embarrassed and they didn't speak up then one lady was like i don't know what that is is that a giraffe and then everyone started saying it. And I love that. It was like really reassuring to them to hear it from others like them. Like, I don't know what that is. And they had, and I, and I was asking them, can you tell me why? And they gave me such good nuanced answers. Like, we didn't grow up in this country. We didn't grow up in Australia where kangaroos are native. We never saw them in our childhood. And um, I just, and I suddenly realized, you know, that we assume knowledge and we underestimate understanding. So and it, it, these this is an example of a lot of the flaws I found in the test, which is we're just assuming these concepts that are very general in the Western world is going to apply to people from other areas, something as simple as a kangaroo, which you think every child would know, but not everybody does. So there was a lot of that. Other things I kind of learned were, for example, the solutions we think are working in the memory services, like leaflets and booklets that are translated and even culturally adapted they're not that useful a lot of the people I spoke to said that you know I'll get a leaflet and it's in Urdu and there's someone like me on the leaflet but I'm going to just toss that in the bin because when this is happening to me or someone I love I don't want to sit there and read things I want a doctor or a nurse or someone to sit with me one-on-one and actually take the time to talk to me
0: Mm. I'm sensing some postdoc work potentially along those potentially. avenues. <laughs> not to put words in your mouth, is is that that does sound like quite a big project to then look at addressing that? But is that something you're looking at in your PhD, or not necessarily? So definitely,
1: definitely something I'm looking at my PhD. Like, okay, for example, you know, they're not liking the leaflets. What do they actually want from staff members? And then going back to staff and asking them that. Do you think you could even accommodate these things? And like, for example, one of the solutions were that, you know, we understand doctors and all might not know our language. But even if they were able to say hello to us in our language, you know, something like salaam, it puts them in such a comfortable place. And I think having those conversations in focus groups everyone suddenly reinforces what you're saying like oh yes we would have loved that we would have loved that and they all feel better and they all start talking more because it's almost like a safe space for them Mm.
0: so it's sounding to me like a focus group is a lot it's richer than having a survey say 14 people replied to a survey and all said the same thing it's different than if it's in a focus group and each person is reinforcing it and it can be a deeper level of saying that that thing and you can you know you can get more from it. Is that, is that your experience?
1: Absolutely. Like I def, I think, you know, surveys are great, especially if you want really fixed data and probably like numbers and stuff, but focus groups have always given me richer data, you know, and I do understand when you might want to do an interview instead of a focus group, maybe if you really want to go into personal and more vulnerable things and in you know South Asian communities, as well, there's this stigma issue so if I was gonna discuss more stigmatizing things, I probably wouldn't do a focus group. But because a lot of this stuff was, it was about service experience, but on a rather technical level, you d- it was richer because people were all corroborating what the other person was saying. Things that they wouldn't even think to mention came up to them because someone else kind of mentioned something similar.
0: Mm, brilliant. All right. I'm I am really excited about the possibility of using focus groups going forward. Now we have had a good description of what the method is and we've had loads of great examples of how it has been used. Let's get into the detail of focus groups and provide some top tips for anyone who's, who is new to using this method. In this section, I'm going to ask some quick, straightforward questions to both guests on how to put the method into practice. Karen, the first ones are for you. Are you ready?
2: Yeah. So,
0: yeah. <laughs> Karen, how should someone prepare for doing focus groups? Uh,
2: well, um, it, it's the same old questions. And I think this is something that Nadine's um, research has is not only in terms of how you've gone about it, Nadine, but also what's come up as a consequence, is uh, uh, um, uh, uh, how how relevant is it? Uh, is the method to those people and how best you know to to run focus groups with with different sorts of groups of people so there are some real pragmatic challenges in terms of uh or decisions to be made around well where are we going to do this um how big does the room need to be how are people going to get there those those sorts of things so um and, and also who do I who out of all of these people um would I most like to speak to and why so you're making exactly the same sorts of pragmatic sampling decisions that you would be making in any other sort sort of research so it's it's both pragmatic and obviously um, uh, theoretically driven these people are more likely to be able to my ask my answer my questions than those I think there's some other questions which is uh, around how you know if you're doing um, focus groups in on questions of conflict what you don't want to do is to bring people who are antagonistic or hostile to each other into the same room so for example if you're doing something on environmentalism and you have different groups with highly different you know um, interests in, in the question in the debates and views of each other you don't you, you, you don't want them in the same room at the same time. So I think that that's something that's enormously interesting about focus group methodology that isn't relevant, say to survey or, or RCTs or um, interviews or, or any of those other sorts of methodologies. You need similarly to have decided what you want to discuss. And because it's a group of people the questions have to be applicable to a large group and i love your examples nadine about how actually your questions may not have any you know investigating what is a kangaroo that's one sort of thing but your questions may not actually have relevance um for for the people that that you're engaging with so i think it's very important to um Interrogate all of those sorts of aspects of researching with people as you would normally um, in in other forms of research. So working with stakeholders and gatekeepers, those sorts of people who can inform upon people that you want to conduct research with. And then the finally, you need to uh, prepare all of all of the equipment. So you're going to have a a whiteboard, a flip chart, you're going to film it, you're going to record it. How are you going to capture what it is that people are going to say? So there are those sorts of things. So focus groups might cost more money, for example, than interviews because you need extra equipment and you may need, you know, room hire and and those sorts of things. So so it's a great, great method, but there's some more or different practical um, considerations you need to take into account.
0: Brilliant. Well, thanks for, for clarifying those differences. And you, you sort of touched a little bit on, my next question was around how do you structure mm-hmm. the, the discussion? And you, you did mention about specifically having questions that are applicable to the whole group. So that's a really good starting point. And how else yeah. might you might you guide the discussion or, or facilitate it?
2: So, again, it's do you want a sort of really forensic discussion on some small details, some highly detailed forensic conversations? Or do you want a very general overview of what it is that you're talking about? So, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you you might want to be quite like using vignettes in decision making. That's such a great strategy. Having... Having something that people can speak to and work through and tell you how they make sense of it relative to how other people might make sense of exactly the same situational case is really helpful because a challenge in focus group methodology is avoiding consensus because when we come together in groups, people, as Nadine said, they don't wanna be the odd one out, they don't wanna say something they don't wanna sound stupid uh, so often people are saying, mm, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, that's such a good point, yes, I do agree and and that's a challenge because that's not you want what you wanna hear, you know you wanna you wanna you wanna get breadth of 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 um, opinion, so having something where everyone has the same access so you support. Um, an explanation, you have some sort of explanation. You have something, perhaps a visual prompt that everyone can look at, and then um, talk to from their own perspective. Helps you avoid um, that instant rush, rush to consensus, and yeah, fear of sticking out. And
0: it might be a slightly naive question, and I, I actually would love to see a focus group. I feel like that's what reality TV is at the moment, focus groups of people with polarised opinions. But you did say to try and avoid that, but equally you're trying to avoid consensus. So is there, a, is there a sort of a sweet spot that you find where there are people who have differing opinions enough, but that they don't end up at loggerheads?
2: That's one of your jobs in a focus group is like um, sort of dampening down um, Uh, tensions if they arise they're unlikely to though um, you're you're much more likely to get people um, collaborating in a focus group than being antagonistic so um, many years ago about uh, we're going back we're going back a couple of decades here um, I ran a focus group with people who were receiving complementary therapy um, during their experience of HIV AIDS and um, one of the groups that I ran, they were all gay men, and deliberately so. the The, the group was set up in that way. And um, that you know, at, at one point in the the focus group, the tape recorder went off because. Um, Someone was getting visibly distressed. And and the focus group actually turned into a a huge supportive group session of of people who were coming together because they had shared that experience, shared those anxieties and fears, shared similar, you know, in some cases, shared similar life histories, you know, really biographical connections between those people. Um, and they were enormously supportive and comforting of each other so it changed from being a focus group to being something completely different and that raises a, lot, a host of ethical issues actually which is very you know focus groups are highly ethically charged as well sounds simple get everyone in a room get them to chat but it is you know um uh, very ethically charged but that and it was at that point the tape recorder went off because it wasn't a focus group anymore um so so not a naive question at all it's it's absolutely at the heart of a focus group methodology managing the formation of new relationships around a topic that people will f- quite commonly feel very passionate about it's important to them that's why they're there
0: and i imagine you need to account for that in any consent form or participant information sheet and when you're recruiting probably do you, to, to to factor in that this will be a group discussion and you don't know where it's going to go, so it could have different impacts. It's hard to know exactly what impact
2: it will have. Well, you don't know that. And also then there's the additional ethical challenge of disclosure. So, you know, if you're doing something that's community-based, again, for example, around environmentalism, you know, and people are tipping up and and talking about things, they might disclose views or attitudes um, that are sort of... um, not in tune or in keeping with perhaps others of their neighborhood and um, what you don't want afterwards or or they might disclose something personal about their lives and you don't want those people in that focus group to then go go away and start talking about what that person said to the the general neighborhood. So managing um, people's understandings of um, confidentiality um, in focus groups uh, where people cannot Really, be anonymous to each other because that's completely opposite uh, to the intentions of a focus group methodology. That's another enhanced ethical ethical consideration, really.
0: Right, right. Okay, so that's some really good tips on, on structuring the discussion, and we can we can yeah. throw in more if we think of more as as we go along. And how do you tend to quantify the outcomes of focus groups?
2: Well. Um, Faith groups aren't necessarily convened um, to produce those sorts of quantified data. Um, so, for example, you know, Nadine's uh, research demonstrates this it's a wonderful methodology for this more interpretive work where you're eliciting people's understandings um, and, and observing how they may theorize. Um, around a particular topic what are the explanations they're producing and why are they producing those sorts of explanation how are they connecting those explanations to other parts of their lives other ideas so quantifying that is is often um, runs against the intentions of of the methodology itself however on the other hand um there is the fees you know it is quite feasible to run a number of focus groups on a test the principle basis if you're asking quite simple questions and getting a sense of what people's views on this are they are they happy with it are they going to go with it or or, you know for example if it's about a a hospital-based service for example um, and it's a clinic that everyone goes to and you, you might want to there are ethics around that. But I mean you might want to ask groups of people around, well how how's this working for you? What the what are the um barriers to accessing? What are the you know great bits about it that you really love. Then a focus group is really, really good um in terms of getting high numbers of responses with quite detailed um, um explanations. So that's 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 a sort of a sweet spot in that regard.
0: Mm and if if say for that last approach, because the first approach I can see or if it is more for interpretive it 's difficult to do any kind of thematic analysis of the transcript if that 's what you're doing, but is there is there an element of if if you have been doing a, was it test the principle was that the, i haven 't heard that yeah. phrase so well. <laughs> <laughs> would, would you then go through a transcript and and look for things like saturation uh, of topics that we talked about in previous qualitative analysis approaches.
2: No, because, uh, you know, the challenge with um, focus groups is consensus, as I said before. So if the idea of saturation is that there's no new new knowledge being produced. People are just saying the same thing again and again. Um, That's often a problem with the question, but also that's a challenge with focus group methodology because, you know, again, people will seek consensus. Um, It's really useful. I can't remember. Nadine, can you help me on this one? Who did... um, forming norming storming and performing who can you did you, have you come across that before it's in like um you know um, organizational psychology um and research it's around how groups form and i can't remember who did it but you you said it now and it's it's oh, triggering something, but, oh. oh brilliant thank you so much bruce trickman so um that's uh, that's making me sound much much more well read than I. Um, but that's one of the things, is that what you observe in a focus group of, of, of group dynamics, it's it's not just one-on-one because you've got a number of people and, and you yourself as a moderator are trying to facilitate the bringing together of people in a way that they're going to, to talk about things. However, I think that you can still do thematic analysis. You can look at, when I asked this question, what was the association that most people... Um, made here was it because it was relevant to their family relationships was it relevant because it was financially important was it relevant in terms of religion or community or or whatever or ch- children or whatever that might be that there's still the potential to do those sorts of um, systematic analyses what what did people mainly do what was what was that over the overarching um, themes that uh, uh, these these data it can be used to support in terms of my own analyses
0: okay okay and then a more specific question for people who are thinking of doing this but maybe mm-hmm. don't like the idea of typing transcripts and running it that way uh, is software now at a stage where it can automatically produce a, a sort of a, a typed manuscript of what was discussed in the focus group
2: i th- probably could um yeah, yeah. In To a limited extent, because people talk over each other mm. um, and, and they I interrupt each other, and like mm. as we've just done. So <laughs> it's, you know, that it can pick it up, but you would then still have to carefully sift through um, any sort of computer generated transcript in order to. Um... So, a great thing to do um, in a focus group, I found, is to have a flip chart where you write responses down so that people can see the sorts of the direction of travel in um, in the discussions but then also you've got like a big pile of paper that can help you work through your transcript and know at what stage people were beginning to talk about this that and the other so you've got a way of you've got a physical map of the conversation at the end of a focus group it goes they go quick and they're, they're busy
0: yeah, I bet. yeah okay yeah. brilliant and you've said they're busy what, what would you do if in a group there's one person who keeps talking um who has an opinion on everything and, and is maybe dominating the discussion
2: i feel seen donica um, <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, so it's it's like in teaching or any other way where you always have that sort of person people get really enthusiastic and completely immersed in them and it's lovely actually that's lovely uh, unless of course it's a bit like a town meeting where someone really has to pontificate um, but the way that you do it is very simple and you say I, I that's so valuable thank you very much but i'd like to hear from some other people if that's okay and you only have to say that and that is a form it's quite tricky because it's it verges on i think social shaming you're telling somebody i don't want you to talk anymore when it's that's. so uh, focus groups are uh, uh you know you're skidding around quite a lot um in in the conversations they're not always straightforward but sometimes you might want to use those sorts of of strategies to say that's you know thank you so much i it would be great to hear from other people mm-hmm. at this mm-hmm. point
0: okay mm-hmm. a, a good a good life skill there thank you <laughs> We, I talked to Nadine a little bit about running uh, focus groups during the pandemic and and doing them online. Um, so I guess this question is is more for you. I know that you ended up doing it with a WhatsApp group, which was fantastic. Um, uh, did you do any Did you do any on Zoom at all, or was it all done on the WhatsApp group?
1: Um, no, I was able to do um, one with carers on Zoom. Uh, so that, that, that was a bit easier. They were uh, quite familiar with the technology. I was working with people around 30s, 40s. So they were quite comfortable on Zoom. And I do say, like, there were pros and cons to Zoom versus WhatsApp. With WhatsApp, obviously, I wasn't always able to see everyone's faces, and, and that adds a whole element. Um, so, Zoom with carers it, it was actually quite alright. Um, we have the chat feature open, so we, the, I always kept trying to reassure people, um, you know, if you're not comfortable saying things aloud to everyone, please feel free to just pop it in the chat. Um, you could even privately chat message me if you want, which which is interesting that you definitely couldn't do in person. You have someone in a group, but they can private message you their thoughts without other people seeing it so that that was an asset of zoom mm-hmm.
0: i can see that that's, that's, that's three different layers isn't it that you can, you can yeah. only get one when you're in the room and it's the person who's comfortable speaking in a group but that's yeah. that's the private person one-on-one and then the chat person i love that and, and i guess we've all seen that in in any meetings we've been at where hmm. sometimes the chat is alive but nobody wants to raise their hand and talk i think that'll be missed if we go back to a. Uh, or it'll be interesting to see actually if people are more we will bring, we'll bring that to, uh, to in real life because yeah. uh, they'll have gotten used to contributing through text and, and we'll just be happier to talk then. We'll, we'll see. Um, what skills, Nadine, should someone work on developing if you wanted to run focus groups?
1: I would say they're rather abstract skills. It's not anything where like, oh, you should go read this chapter or something. I think one of the most important skills is listening techniques. So um, I used to work for an anonymous phone line for like helping people with advice and stuff. And I ended up using so many of those techniques for my focus groups. So just like, for example, uh, active, si- active listening, which is just being silent. And I know you have to do those for interviews anyway, but I think far more so for focus groups because you have to keep reminding yourself, I'm just a mediator. I have to let them talk. Um, which can be so awkward when no one is talking for 15 seconds 30 seconds and it feels like an eternity and there have been times where I felt like oh my god I should just interrupt now then someone speaks and it's like thank god I stayed silent because it's always going to be something very important um, and then like mentioned knowing how to do minimal encouragement correctly you know the mm-hmm, uh-huh you know don't there's a balance between staying silent but having those little minimal phrases paraphrasing what everyone has said so maybe after everyone's kind of said their points making sure that you are taking it in and then say so i see that we've discussed this 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 and this 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 so i think that is very important um frame of reference is very important which we use in interviews which is use the terms that the group is using while you're talking to them one example is so I had one group and they were talking about dementia and they were referring to themselves as you know were people who live with dementia so I I stopped saying service users and I said you know as people living with dementia in contrast another group was referring to themselves as were people who suffer with dementia And they were actually very much against the living with term because they wanted their suffering acknowledged. So for that group, I was very mindful that, okay, I'm going to say people who are suffering with dementia. So that's just putting the conversation according to their frame, according to their references.
0: Brilliant. I love that. And again, really good life lessons for listening to anyone talk. Yeah. <laughs> this could be a, a form of uh, of personality improvement. Uh, everyone has to go and run a focus group and, uh, and get graded on it. <laughs> speaking of speaking of personalities, rather than the personality of the, the person doing the focus group, are there certain kinds of personalities that people recommend you look out for when you're trying to assemble a, a focus group um, a sample? Um, I
1: mean... I would assume, you know, on a practical level, you want gregarious people, outspoken people. You want those, you know, extroverts who are going to talk. But actually, I try not to think of the ideal participant because if you think about it, that's a huge form of bias, isn't it? People who are staying quiet and, and are, you know, less likely to talk and all because those traits within them, could be shaping a whole experience that I've just excluded because they're not talkers. Because, for example, if someone is not very outspoken, it's not just going to impact their focus group experience. It would impact how they're experiencing a service. Are they advocating for themselves? How is their diagnostic experience like? What is it like caring for someone? So I personally, it, I can't choose who ends up coming to me, but I personally would not favour a certain personality. Okay,
0: okay. I love your examples. I think it's really important and it always makes me think of these surveys that are done on Twitter where mm. someone might get 20,000 responses, but they're all of Twitter users, which is yeah. some really odd section of outspoken people, often quite angry.
2: Exactly, Maybe <laughs> exactly. not so angry in
0: academia, but it's even, you know, the more outgoing people in academia. And, and then they think, well, this is a really good sample. Well, it's probably a little bit biased, but that's, that's a valid point for, for focus groups. Um, what other methods alongside focus groups have you been using so far in your, in your PhD or even, even before this that...
1: Um, so I've definitely used surveys and questionnaires and I've used semi-structured interviews as well.
0: Okay, okay. And the difference between semi-structured interviews and focus groups, is it the number of participants? Yes,
1: yeah, so my semi-structured interviews have been more one-on-one and then it's mostly just the distinction itself between my roles in an interview versus a focus group. So in the interview, It really much is a back and forth conversation between myself and that person. And even though I should not be talking as much as the person, I'm still talking more than I would in a focus group. You know, in an interview, it's a conversation between two people. In the focus group, I am simply mediating the conversation that other people are having, almost like they're interviewing each other and I'm just making sure everyone's behaving.
0: Okay, okay. And now we've already talked about consensus in groups, so feel no pressure to agree. But do you agree when, when Karen mentioned that the maximum number should be around fourteen, and a, and a good number would be was it eight to eight to twelve or so? Is a nice number?
1: You- I do agree. So um, I've I've done groups with you know just for example three four people, and I think that also depends on who you're working with. So my biggest groups have been ten people. And that was fine. And that was when we were doing the conversations around the cognitive test. And it was a very sort of step-by-step process. You know, we were going through different questions of the test. So it was very linear. Like, okay, now we're doing this question, this question. Not too much personal stuff coming out. So it was easy to do with 10 people. But, for example, when I was doing my WhatsApp with people with dementia, 10 would have been too much. We had just... Three to four people in those groups, and that was a more manageable sort of number. So I think you need to match the number to the technique that you're using.
0: Okay, valuable advice. And and last last quickfire question: uh, Do you find that you should have a break and maybe provide refreshments midway through, or do you tend to just do it all in one big go while there's while there's flow in the conversation?
1: Um. So. My focus groups have never gone more than an hour and what I've always done was, I guess again because of the population I was working at, working with South Asians, there's no concept of waiting to have tea. So during the focus groups, we had food laid out on the table. We had Everyone had their cups of teas in hand. And I think that added to the more casual atmosphere. You know, they were talking to me and they're sipping their tea and they resumed talking to me. And I think that was better. Everyone felt more relaxed. I did make a point, of course, to ask, you know, we're already halfway through. Does anyone want to take a break, you know, take a rest? And they're all kind of like, no, no, let's just keep having our tea. Let's have our, you know, samosas and our kebabs and let's just keep going. And food is a, is a big motivator. I have now learned that it is actually rude to do a focus group without food there.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you so much, folks, for your, your really insightful and succinct answers to all of those questions. Next up, I'm going to recap on what I've learned so far. Well, this has been wonderful so far, and I can see it's obviously much more involved than I expected. And clearly, because of the popularity of focus groups as a a technique, the term focus group has come to mean different things to to different people. But I said I'd, I'd recap on what I've learned so far. And for me, one of the main things was that focus groups, Are ideal for a number of different stages of uh, research and data collection. So whether that's the start of a project, possibly when you're interrogating uh, or sorry, exploring an idea, uh, a focus group can be a really good way of of guiding you which avenues to explore in your research. But equally, at the other end, once you've collected a lot of data, uh, using something called member checking seminars, focus groups can be a great way of interrogating these research findings. And I imagine focus groups can be adapted and used for every part in between those steps. Another point I'd learned about is that focus groups can be a great way to get a lot of viewpoints uh, all at once in quite a contained amount of time. We talked about an hour being the sort of max and that makes sense. And also the, the maximum number of people being sort of not much north of 14, but uh, but that might need to be a lot less depending on the topic that you're discussing, uh, the sensitivity of the topic or the difficulty, and maybe even the medium. So we mentioned how smaller numbers, uh, if it's a, a WhatsApp chat group rather than in person, and I, I can see the sense in that. My s- s- next two learning points are quite closely related and uh, point three was that preparing the room, preparing the sample that attend, uh, preparing the questions that you might use and how to guide your discussion is, is really important to making this a successful uh, technique and, and maybe using things like vignettes if you wanted to add some structure to a, a decision making process and to guide people through it will will help the flow of the conversation. And also preparing yourself, so skills that would be useful to have a think about before doing a focus group are are mainly things like active listening, whether that's paraphrasing back or or using the participant's term of reference or using the kind of words they use to describe the topics um, and to to use minimal encouragement and to leave uh, time for silence and for people to process their thoughts are all really key skills for running a successful focus group. So in this final part of the show, we're going to discuss common pitfalls, challenges and how to avoid them. Nadine, tell us, what challenges did you come across in delivering your research and what might you do differently? What have you learned along the way?
1: Um, So I thought about this and and there are three distinct ones that I can think of. Um, One is, you know, mentioned earlier as well, there's a lot of logistics around the focus group. you know, getting the room, finding a time and a place that everyone can kind of agree on and um, the population I was working with quite difficult to recruit from as well um, and this also introduced another element of bias but I think I had to balance my pros and cons here so for example with um, the groups that I did around the test so I needed you know 20 people total I looked at existing groups so for example i went to my local pakistani community center and they already had this group that meets weekly of people who have loved ones who have dementia and they just come and they sit together and they just so i went to the center and i was like how would you feel about me doing a focus group with these existing groups during one of the sessions where they already meet and in that way you know the room was already sorted already got all these people available at this time and another benefit I got from this was because all of these people are familiar with each other. They were friends, which meant no one felt awkward talking around anybody. People who I didn't have that introvert extrovert problem. Um, everyone was very free with their opinions because these are people they meet every week and have shared their deepest secrets with. So that ended up working in my favor. Another thing was I had to be, I think you should be very mindful about the comfort level of your groups in terms of things like culture, for example. So with my groups, I never had a mixed men and women group. Um, I had my separate women's group and separate men's group because there were just certain things they would not be comfortable speaking about in front of the other gender, Um, And it made a huge difference. The things that women would say, the things that men would say, their individual experiences. And because I'm a woman, I was fine in the women's group. When I went to the men's group, I made sure that my supervisor accompanied me because he's a South Asian man. And they felt far more open speaking. And then another thing I really did with them was I had a representative from the center join the focus groups. Because a lot of people were initially a bit reluctant. They were a bit confused. Like, are you going to take our data and and share it with people? And, you know, it doesn't matter how many consent forms and information sheets you throw at people. um, Certain groups are a bit scared. Having the representative who they see, like, every day, they're like, "No, no, don't worry, you can trust her. You know, answer her questions. It's just a group session. It made all the difference in how much people were willing to share And then a third technical thing, which I'm so glad I started doing after my first focus group, I was going to transcribe it myself and I was listening back to the recording. And as mentioned, people do talk over each other. So I was getting confused like, oh, my God, who said this? Who said this? From then on, we started doing this thing myself and my fellow PhD students. One of us would accompany the other. And be transcribing like live, like sitting there typing things as the conversation is going. So when later on, when you're listening to the recording, you don't have to do the full sentences, but when you can see, oh, this person. OK, it's not this, ter- this, this, this. It mm-hmm. made transcribing so much easier.
0: Excellent. Top tip. Okay, mm-hmm. well, thank you for that. Karen, what are the common pitfalls? Now, you've already mentioned avoiding consensus and avoiding having two polar, polar opposite opinions in the room. Uh, have you other pitfalls that you, you'd like to warn us about and, and how to go about avoiding them?
2: Um, in addition to the ones that we said, one thing that we haven't talked about is if you're dealing with professional groups, there might well be a managerial hierarchy at play. So the all in addition to all of the other moderation mm-hmm. challenges, that might that might be something that, that you, you do need to um, bear in mind. Um, and also when we were talking about how many in a group, if you've got 14 people in a group, an hour isn't enough because that would give each person two minutes to talk, or, you know, something ridiculous, you know, it's like, it's barely anything, two to four minutes. So, um, but uh, the other thing is, is that although you might be, this is coming right back to your your introduction, um, Donica, where you were talking about looking at people's interactions, it's really important to recognise that uh, because people are forming a distinctive group that's particular to that particular focus group setting, um, you need to take that into account rather than uncritically treating the focus group as somehow a naturalistic um, setting. In addition to people who uh, might dominate, you may also, um, and Nadine has mentioned this, people who become muted in a conversation that, you know, for for uh, whatever Uh, reasons and they may need to assert themselves to speak and they 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 just don't want to in terms of a sort of a more of um, how we might understand the character of the data that we're collecting um, if you're dealing with questions of performativity i.e how much um, uh, people are uh, how people are shaping what it is that they say for the purposes of that particular um setting that this is quite a high it's quite an artificial setting in in some respects. I love your example, Nadine, that actually working with groups who were already established is by is a wonderful way to go. I think that's absolutely fantastic. but bringing complete strangers into a room, they're on their best behaviour. Uh, they don't want to sound stupid they don't you know all of these things so actually what you're going to get from them is going to be far more towards that sort of performative um end, unless you can do as Nadine does and you know uh, work with existing groups of people who know each other um and um it, you know that access to people's p- very highly personal experiences is is going to be far more limited in, in that very public um, setting. Nevertheless, I do want to end up on quite a positive note, because I do think that focus groups are really great ways of observing how people are theorising about their experience, the sense-making that they're doing, in situ, uh, why they're saying the things that they're saying, because they're doing it in dialogue, and we often as humans theorise in dialogue we try and work it out together and make sense of it together and work it through so i think focus group is fantastic um, to have a look at those sorts of um, uh, uh, processes excellent
0: excellent okay so in this final segment i'm going to give our expert karen one minute to tell our listeners what they should go away and read to further their knowledge on this method
2: It's an oldie, but it's still great. It's Jenny um, Kitzinger's "The Methodology of Focus Groups," um, and that is the importance of interaction between research participants. Um, Rosalind Barber she's written uh, the classic "Doing Focus Groups," um, and there's a webinar uh, by Rosalind Barber on YouTube um, that's really well where she where she talks about them. There's a series of Sage handbooks or longer texts. Um, on focus groups one of which is called focus group methodology principles and practice and and that was um, uh, edited by prani liampatong but if you really want to be overwhelmed with resources go to the ncrm um, website there's hundreds of videos and just oodles of materials on conducting focus groups Um, in a wide range of settings with different groups and for different um, purposes. Um, It'll take you forever to get to the end of those.
0: (laughs) Well, I better get cracking on it then. Folks, thank you so much. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. So let me say a huge thank you to our wonderful guests, the astounding Dr. Karen Hughes and the brilliant Nadine Mirza.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you both. Join us next time, folks, as we explore another research method that matters.